Rudnick. This is my lovely wife, Tracy. Hi, I'm John Rudnick. We're Barry and Anita Chenault. My name's Edward Devlin. My name is Rosalie Devlin. Hi, we are Brent and Sheila Howell. My name is Matt Leesman. Hi, my name is Hannah Rollins. My name is Chad Peterson. I grew up in a Christian household. I was taught about God. I was taught about Jesus. I made the decision to be baptized. I do remember after being baptized in a pool at 12 or 13, however old I was, I remember thinking that I was going to be a great Christian. My life after that, it looked like anything but the life of a great Christian. My teens, my 20s, you know, I was playing music in rock bands and then coming home smelling like an ashtray and three hours later I'd be playing on the worship team the next morning. You know, I was, I was in situations around people, around girls, doing things I absolutely had no business doing. Come 2019, my wife pulled for me that I had a uh, habitual sexual sin within my marriage for years. I watched things start to crumble right in front of my face knowing that I was responsible for my own sin and suddenly I had a mess that I had made and I had to face the fact that I didn't have a good, strong Christian character. I came to the heart of addiction and I got a chance to see, see real Christian men, not just wrestling with addiction, but you know, their, their own identity. What kept coming up was this idea of submission. And I came to understand that really a problem I had wasn't, wasn't so much a pornography problem as it was a control and pride issue. And there was that step I cruised over early on in my life that I never, ever got right. Uh, I started counseling with a trusted Christian friend, and he, he wasn't scared to ask me the tough questions. And it finally got to the point where I, I broke. After I surrendered to Christ, it, it's not been perfect, but it has been a time of growth. I'm so thankful to my wife for her patience and her grace. As, as I slowly grow with spiritual growth, I, I start to understand the process of sanctification and that it's not dependent on me, that this is all Christ. Amen. Church, what an awesome story. Jesus does change people. Amen. Amen. Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. And while you're turning there, just want to let you know about a couple of things going on at Coastal. So first of all, fellas, we'd love to see you bright and early on Saturday morning for our men's breakfast. This Saturday morning at 7 a.m., come on out for a good time of food and fellowship and time in the Word together, Saturday morning, 7 a.m. For security team, if you are currently serving on the security team or are interested in serving on the security team, we have a training coming up next Sunday after this service at 12.30 p.m. If you're interested, you can contact Mark Cockrum. We got his email right up there. We have our trunk or treat coming up at the end of the month, Sunday, September 30th, 4 to 6 p.m. So make sure, parents, you bring your little ones out. It's going to be a great time. And now there are two things required to have a trunk or treat. You know what they are? Trunks and treats. All right, so uh, we were looking for volunteers to provide those two things. If you are interested in decorating a trunk, you can sign up online, or you've got some cards over here you can fill up and sign out uh, fill out and sign up. I got those two mixed up. Or you can talk to Amy Sexton for more info. Or we're taking candy donations. So if you'd like to go and grab a box of candy, drop it off in the box over there, we would really appreciate that as well. All righty. Luke 19, we are pivoting in this sermon series where for the first half, we've been focusing on prayer. Now in the second half, we are going to be focusing on evangelism. And let's just tell it like it is right up front. Evangelism is hard. 
Evangelism, listen, I mean, that's putting it nicely. Evangelism is about as fun as a root canal. Like it's difficult, y'all, unless you're in like the 1% of like hardcore extroverts, you know, never met a stranger, has no problem making other people feel uncomfortable. For the rest of us normal people, evangelism is really hard. It's awkward. It's difficult. We don't know what to say. We're afraid of how people are going to think. So evangelism is something that we struggle with. But at the same time, we understand that evangelism is essential. That evangelism is essential. Every person in this room who is a follower of Jesus, in some sense, is a follower of Jesus because someone loved you enough to tell you about Jesus. Whether that be a parent or a family member or a friend or a coworker or a neighbor or whoever else. Because someone loved us enough to evangelize us. So it's imperative that in this sermon series, we look into scripture, we learn what evangelism is and why we should be engaged in it. And I believe that as always, the best teacher is Jesus. The best way we can learn how to do evangelism is to watch Jesus do it. And that's why we are going to Luke chapter 19 this morning. So here's the game plan. I want us to walk through this story, this famous story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. I want us to look at how Jesus brought the gospel to this man. And then I want to ask three questions of this story to see how it is relevant for us today. So let me give you my main point. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. We should follow his example by seeking the lost because Jesus saves. Our goal in these four weeks is to equip us as a congregation to think missionally and to live our lives missionally, viewing every day as an opportunity to share the gospel. And so toward that end, we actually have the welcome desks, have these little booklets that we've prepared for you that I'd encourage you to take one on the way out that gives different methods of sharing the gospel that our pastors have approved. So I hope you'll grab one on the way out. But with all that in mind, let's look at the scriptures together. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse one. The word of God says, he entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you that you came into this world to seek and to save lost sinners like me. Lord, I thank you that even though we are so undeserving, you have sought us and you have saved us. And I pray, oh Lord, that you would give us a passion and a desire to take this gospel to the nations to take this gospel to our neighborhood, to our communities, to our workplaces, and to be a part of your mission to seek and save the lost. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We ask that you'd clear away any distractions in our minds and that you would place our focus squarely on Jesus, that we would learn from you and that we'd become more like him. In Jesus' name, amen.
Let's start with some context here. So this is a very famous story that is actually only told in Luke. And there's something really unique about the gospel of Luke. So there's this long travel narrative in Luke that spans about 10 chapters. It starts in Luke 9.51, where Luke says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This begins 10 chapters of Jesus's journey to Jerusalem, his journey to the cross, where he is teaching about his life and his ministry and what he came to accomplish. And guess what the last story, the last event that takes place in this travel narrative is? It's this one. It's Jesus and Zacchaeus. I bring that up to say, because I think that this story is something of a capstone for Jesus's ministry in Luke. And I think that verse 10 is something of a mission statement from Jesus about what he came to accomplish. So let's walk through this story together. Verse one, he entered Jericho and was passing through. Now we know about Jericho. Y'all been to Sunday school. You know about Jericho, right? It's where they, they march around the walls and on the seventh day, the walls fell down. They blew the trumpets, the whole thing. They win the city. Well, apparently it had been rebuilt by this time and it had become by Jesus's day, a very wealthy city. It was a well-watered oasis in its desert surroundings. And Jericho was pretty close to Jerusalem. It was only about 15 miles away. So think like here to Matthews. So Jesus is now getting very close to Jerusalem. He, and I think that's important to remember because we need to have in the back of our minds what is about to happen. Jesus is really close now to Jerusalem. He's really close to the cross. And this is what is on Jesus's mind. This is what Jesus is doing as he's about to be in Jerusalem. Verse two, there is a man named Zacchaeus. This next character is introduced and Luke tells us two things about Zacchaeus. First, that he was a chief tax collector. He wasn't just a tax collector. He was a chief tax collector. That means he was in charge of the other tax collectors. And we read our Bibles and we know that these guys weren't real popular. That's putting it nicely. The Jews of Jesus's day despised tax collectors. They hated tax collectors. And why? I mean, yeah, the IRS is annoying, but we don't usually hate them. We don't have this kind of animosity. Why were they so despised? Two reasons. First of all, for their dishonesty. They were crooks. If you owed $10 in taxes, they would charge you $20 and then pocket the other 10. They would be corrupt and they would get wealthy by charging more than they needed to. But that wasn't the only reason. Not only were they dishonest, but the Jews viewed them as traitors because often they were Jewish tax collectors. And who were they collecting taxes for? Anybody? Rome. They were collecting taxes for Rome, this hostile foreign power who had conquered the known world at the time. And so now they are taking their money to fund this nation who had come and conquered their nation the nation of Israel, the land that God had promised to Abraham and to his descendants, their land was now being ruled by Rome and their brothers are stealing their money to fund it. Now you understand why they despise these guys so much. And not only that, it says that Zacchaeus was rich. Zacchaeus had gotten very wealthy on all of this. Verse three, Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. The ESV is so polite, right? He was small in stature. Y'all, he was short, okay? <laughs> Let's be straight up. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me be more politically correct. Uh, he was vertically challenged. How about that one? Uh, he was not the biggest guy in the world. I mean, you guys know this because you know the song, right? 
Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. I'm really disappointed in Corey that the worship team didn't sing that this morning. It would have been perfect, you know? But listen, he was a wee little man. He was short, all of that. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but Jesus is so famous that he's got this big crowd around him so he can't see him. So he climbs up in a sycamore tree. I Googled a picture of one of these things and they're really cool. So there's like, they're big trees, but they've got these big thick branches that are really low to the ground. So they're kind of perfect for climbing. But just picture this in your mind. You've got this wealthy elite tax collector who's running and climbing up a tree. In other words, he's acting like a child because he wants to see who Jesus was. He was so desperate to see Jesus that he was willing to sacrifice his his dignity to see him. And I love what Jesus says to him in verse five. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. There's so much that's interesting about that. First of all, these two had never met. How do I know that? Because it said that Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was, but Jesus knows his name. Hey, Zacchaeus. Then he says, hurry up. In other words, it's like, come on, man, we got to go. We got plans. What are you doing? Why are you in a tree? We got plans. Hurry up, come down. Why? For I must come to your house today. Not, can I please stay? No, I must come to your house today. And I love that. I mean, why did Jesus invite himself over for dinner? Was it because there's no room in the inn again? Like there's nowhere else for him to go. Was Jesus just being like the ultimate mother-in-law here, just inviting himself over? no. Jesus says, I must come to your house today because he knew he had a divine appointment. He knew that this is why he had to go through Jericho. Wasn't because of travel plans. He had to go through Jericho because he had a divine appointment with Zacchaeus. Verse six, how did Zacchaeus respond? Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received him joyfully. I mean, imagine it. This man, his whole life was used to being despised by his fellow Jews, being scorned by them. And now someone's inviting himself to his house. You know, we tend, we don't get this in our culture because having a meal with someone, it's not really a big deal. Getting coffee with someone, getting lunch with someone, it's not a big deal. But in that culture, table fellowship really suggested friendship and intimacy. For Jesus to go to his house was a display of friendship and love that would have been scandalous in that culture. The Jewish rabbis of Jesus's day taught that to even enter into the house of a tax collector was to become ceremonially unclean. But here's the amazing thing about Jesus. When Jesus hangs out with sinners, Jesus doesn't become unclean. They become clean. So then verse seven, how did the crowd feel about this? When they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. So Jesus, rather than pleasing the crowd, he went after the one. Rather than pleasing the crowd, Jesus went after the one. And they grumbled, this man has gone to visit with a man who is a sinner. These crowds are the religious people. They are embittered toward the grace of God going to people that they don't feel like deserve it. They remind me of the Pharisees who it says in Luke 15 that when the tax collectors and prostitutes were coming around Jesus to hear him teach, they grumbled. They remind me of the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. Remember how he felt when his younger brother came home? He was mad about it. They remind me of Jonah 
after Jonah's very successful evangelism, how did Jonah react? Lord, thank you. You've saved the Ninevites. Is that how the story goes? No, he gets mad that they repented. Self-righteous people are bitter toward the grace of God. That is a mark of self-righteousness, being bitter toward the grace of God. And I believe this story is almost a real life enactment of the parable in Luke 18. If you flip over in your Bible one page, it says this. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I love that. All right, hold on, pause. Um, We just finished a sermon series on prayer. That's a good tip for how not to start your prayers. All right, let's continue. I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Zacchaeus is like the tax collector in this story because his heart recognized his need of God's mercy. The crowds are like the Pharisee in this story who were content to, in their own righteousness. So how did Zacchaeus respond after his dinner with Jesus? Verse eight, Zacchaeus said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. He's voluntarily giving away half of what he owns. Contrast that with the rich young ruler. Also in Luke chapter 18, who when he came to Jesus, Jesus tells him, give away your stuff. And he goes away sad because he had many possessions. Now he's voluntarily giving away half of what he owns. Then it says, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. I don't want you to miss how significant that is because he's going way above and beyond even what he was obligated to do. Look with me at Leviticus chapter six. This is what the Old Testament law taught the Israelites to do in cases of theft and robbery and defrauding people. Leviticus six, if he has sinned and realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or oppression or deposit that was committed to him or lost thing he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, what do you do? He shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. In other words, give it back plus 20% on top. Zacchaeus does 400%. He restores it fourfold. Why? Because his repentance is above and beyond. Because the spiritual riches that he has now found in Christ have freed his heart from being enslaved to the riches of this world how the gospel has transformed this man who was once consumed by greed and has now made him generous. Now he wants to give it all away. And imagine what a testimony this now is to the people of Jericho. This man who was once ripping them off is now giving all of his stuff away. Uh, John Bloom on desiringgod.org wrote a really great fictional article just imagining you were one of these people on the other side of Zacchaeus' tax reef turns. And this is, imagine how it goes. 
You open the door, it's Zacchaeus. And you're mad. What is he doing here? Is he here to take more of my money? Every time I see this guy, he's ripping me off. So you see Zacchaeus and he said, I just want you to know, I am so sorry for how I have defrauded you. And I want you to take this. This is me trying to make it right. And then you look at the check and it's four times more than you've ever paid in taxes in your life. Pretty good deal, huh? What a testimony that is. His past sin was not a threat to his evangelism. It was a testimony being used in the service of evangelism. That's what the gospel does, y'all. The gospel restores us. And our past now becomes our testimony of God's grace and the way to show that we really are redeemed. How does Jesus respond? Verse nine, Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. Zacchaeus was saved not because of his repentance, but his repentance is the evidence that his heart truly was changed by Jesus. His generosity is the evidence that his heart is no longer captured by greed. So he was saved that very day. And it said, since he also is a son of Abraham. Don't be tripped up by that. I don't think he's speaking here in merely ethnic categories. He's not saying you're saved because you're Jewish because he was already Jewish. But rather, in the New Testament, that category, son of Abraham, takes on a more spiritual meaning. Look at Galatians 3, 7. It says, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. In other words, he is now a son of Abraham because he has placed his faith in the God of Abraham. And in that way, he is a son of Abraham. And then we come to verse 10, which is the climax of the story. And I believe the mission statement of Jesus Christ. Now, pop quiz, and you will be graded. Uh, what is our mission statement here at Coastal? Anybody? Mission statement here at Coastal. It's all right. I ain't got plans. To develop authentic followers of Jesus Christ. That's it. That is our mission here at Coastal. It is why we exist. I think that in the same way, Luke 19.10 is the mission statement of Jesus. Why did Jesus come into the world? Luke 19.10, to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came to seek the lost. Jesus is the seeker in this story. It says in Luke 19.3, Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was. But Jesus said, I came to seek and save the lost. Warren Wearsby put it this way. Zacchaeus thought he was seeking Jesus, but Jesus was seeking him. Jesus seeks after us when we're running away. Jesus came to save the lost. He came into this world to be our savior. So church, now that we've walked through this story together, I now want to take a step back and ask three questions of this story and three questions of this story and then close by asking two questions of us. So first of all, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. First question, who are the lost? Who are the lost? If Jesus came and seek and save the lost, who are the lost? Answer, everyone. All right, next question. Just kidding. Let's unpack that a little bit. Uh, apart from Christ, we are all lost. We are all sinners. We are all guilty before a holy God. The Bible teaches that because of what Adam did in the garden, we are born into this world with a sin nature. We are born into this world guilty before a holy God. We are sinners. Pastor Sean said it last week. We have to tell the bad news before the good news even makes sense. 
That is probably the biggest problem with modern evangelism, that we don't understand the bad news, that we don't understand our sin. And I'm not just talking about the world, I'm talking about the church. Ligonier Ministries puts out a survey every two years called the State of Theology, where they survey both U.S. adults more generally and American evangelicals more narrowly about basic theology questions. And if you ever want to get depressed, if you're too happy with your life, just read this survey, okay? So I read it, and this was one, and it's, a, it's an agree or disagree thing, statements that you agree or disagree with. Uh, there was the statement that said, everyone is born innocent before God. And 65% of American evangelicals said they agreed. Guys, that's not biblical. We're guilty. We're sinners. The Bible teaches that all of us come into this world with a sin nature. We are guilty before God. And don't take my word for it. Take God's word for it. Romans 3. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We could go on and on. I know that verse won't be on your coffee cup, but it's true. It's important. We have to understand the bad news before the good news will ever make sense. The bad news that according to this text, we are all under sin. We are not seeking after God. We are not righteous. We do not do what is good. We have a tendency in American culture to make this assumption that people, that we're all morally neutral, that we're basically good. And so the default is heaven and hell is just for the really bad people, like the Hitlers of the world and stuff. Guys, that's not biblical. The Bible teaches that we are all sinners, that our default, our factory setting as human beings is sin. And for that, we deserve God's judgment. And once we understand that, once we understand what it means to be lost, maybe then we can finally be found. Because the next question is very important. If we are all lost, well, then how are the lost saved? How are the lost saved? You guys know this, it's the gospel. It's the gospel, isn't it? That's how the lost are saved, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news that Jesus saves. And now, as we're talking about evangelism, there's nothing that is more important to you being an evangelist than you knowing the gospel crystal clear and you being able to articulate the gospel clearly and lovingly at a moment's notice. One of my seminary professors said, you ought to be able to tweet it or preach it. What he means is you should be able to give somebody the 140 characters, the short version of the gospel, and you should be able to have an hour-long conversation about the gospel on an airplane. We tend to make evangelism really complicated sometimes with methods and tips and tricks and props and whatever else, and that's fine. But at the end of the day, all evangelism is, is communicating the gospel with another person with an aim toward persuading them to receive Christ. That's all it is. You want to be an evangelist, evangelist, you just got to know the gospel and be able to share it. So I know Pastor Sean did it last week, but we're going to do it again because repetition is good for us. We are going to go through the core facts of the gospel. And now disclaimer, there's a lot more we could say about the gospel than these three things. There's a lot more we could say, but we can't say less than these three things. These are the basic irreducible components of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they come from 1 Corinthians 15. 
Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ, it's the first fact, there is someone named Christ, died for our sins. It's the second fact, that this person named Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried. I take the burial as confirmation of his death, that he really died. That he was raised on the third day. That's the third fact in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared. The appearances were the confirmation of the resurrection. So we see three facts there. Let's go through them. First of all, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. It is Christ who died for our sins. Who is Christ? Well, what is his last name? Christ is a title. It means Messiah. The Messiah was the promised savior from the Old Testament who would come and save his people from their sins. He was to be a king, yet he was also to be a suffering servant. And yet the Bible is also very clear that he was more than just a man. He was also divine. We're probably gonna read this verse at Christmas time, Isaiah 9, 6, right? He shall be called mighty God. This Messiah is God. Jesus is God. He is fully God and fully man in one person. And as God, Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus lived a sinless life, lived a perfect life, completely fulfilling the demands of God's law. But the next fact is that Jesus died for our sins, that Christ died for our sins. This means that Jesus died a substitutionary death. Because of our sin before God, we all owe God a debt that we could never repay. And Jesus paid that debt in our place on the cross. He paid for our sins through his death. But then Jesus rose from the dead. Fact number three, Jesus rose from the dead. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is a bodily resurrection. That means he literally physically died and he literally came back to life again. It wasn't a spiritual resurrection. It wasn't a metaphor about new life or whatever. This is a real bodily resurrection. Jesus was raised from the dead. His resurrection is the verification of all of it, of his person and work. It proved that he really was God. It proved that his sacrifice for sins was sufficient. It proved that death really had been defeated. That is the gospel. And now I'm going to ask Amber to turn the screens blank. I'm going to ask you guys to flip over your note sheets because no cheating. Uh, if you're standing in Starbucks in line, you're not going to have a big screen in front of you with the facts on it. We're going to say this together. No cheating, no looking. We got to have this memorized. You ready? Jesus is Jesus. Jesus. You guys are so good. You just evangelized me. I love that. Memorize it. Be able to tweet it or preach it. Know the gospel inside and out. And now that you know the gospel, if I hear that story and I'm like, man, that's awesome. That Jesus guy, he's really cool. But how does he become my savior? How am I impacted by that? What are you gonna tell me to do? Repent means turn from your sins. Believe, what do I believe? That Jesus is God, that Jesus died for our sins, that Jesus rose from the dead and receive. It's not just knowing some facts about Jesus. It is a personal trust in him to save me. Receive him into my life as my personal savior. That is the gospel. That is how you become a Christian. So if we know who the lost are and we know how the lost are saved, let's close by asking one final question. 
why should we seek the lost? Why should we seek the lost? I mean, Jesus said he came to seek and save the lost. Why do we need to do it? Let me give you three reasons why. First reason why we should seek the lost is the example of Jesus. The example of Jesus. Church, Jesus seeks and saves the lost. We seek the lost because Jesus saves. We seek the lost in order to tell them about the saving message of the gospel. And just really quickly, let's look at Luke 19 and see some of these examples that Jesus leaves for us. I love how Jesus intentionally sought out Zacchaeus, that he spent time with Zacchaeus, that he went over to his house. It wasn't just Jesus is walking by, he sees this short dude in a tree and he goes, Jesus is God. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus rose from the dead. Have a nice day and kept going. No, like he went to his house. He spent time with him. He entered into his life. He broke down the social conventions of the day. He irritated this whole crowd of people just to go and spend time with Zacchaeus, to go to his house. Are we intentionally spending time with lost people? Do we have lost friends? Are we entering into their lives? We should seek to spend time with people, to be good neighbors, to be good coworkers, not viewing people as statistics in our evangelism pursuit, but viewing them as people to be loved. But I also love the urgency of Jesus in this story, don't you? Hurry up, Zacchaeus, for I must come to your house today. Are we communicating the gospel with a sense of urgency? Are people understanding that heaven and hell are real and that eternity is on the line? So the first is the example of Jesus, but next is love for the lost. It is evident that Jesus loved Zacchaeus, that Jesus genuinely cared for Zacchaeus. I believe our gospel conversations ought to come from and be an overflow of the love that we have for people. When we love people, we will want what's best for them. And what is eternally best for someone is Christ. It is love for a person that motivates us to share the gospel. I love the example of love for the lost that Paul gives us in Romans 9. He says this, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. I have never loved someone that much. Have you? He loved them so much that he said, I wish I could go to hell in their place, that I could be cut off from Christ. That is how much his heart was grieved for the lost. Do we love the lost so much that we are willing to share Christ with them, that we are willing to risk embarrassment, willing to risk awkwardness, willing to risk rejection in order to tell them the truth? The example has been used many times, and I think it's a powerful one. If your neighbor's house is on fire in the middle of the night and they're asleep, the most loving thing you can do is bang on their door and scream to wake them up, and if necessary, drag them out of the house. In the same way, church, there's an eternal fire that is burning. We should love people enough to tell them the truth. So why do we do evangelism? The example of Jesus, love for the lost. And I have one last one that you're not expecting. I promise you, you're not expecting it. You ready? For joy. Why should we do evangelism? For the joy that we get from it. Now, listen, I get it. 
I know this is hard to believe because of what I do for a living, but I'm actually a hardcore introvert. I'm actually a very shy person by nature. So when I think about evangelism, a lot of words come to mind. Anxiety, awkwardness, rejection. All of those things might come to mind, but you know what doesn't crack the top 10? Joy. In fact, it feels anything but joyful most of the time. But listen, why does evangelism produce joy? Because we get to be a part of what God is doing in saving the world. We get to be a part of seeing God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We get to be a part of Jesus's mission. And let me tell you, there is no greater joy than seeing the lost found than seeing the dead brought back to life, from seeing someone's life radically changed by Jesus. There's no greater joy than that. Luke 15 puts it this way. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Church, there is joy in heaven when a sinner repents. There's a party in heaven when someone comes to Christ. Don't we want to join in here and now? Don't we want to enter into that joy here and now? That's why we seek the lost. Well, church, I'd like to close with a story this morning that I think perfectly illustrates what Jesus did for us in seeking and saving us. This comes from the book, Creatures of the Word. It's a long story, but I think it's worth it. When the World Trade Center crumbled to the ground on that dreadful day of September 11th, 2001, more than 3,000 people died. But a few of those who were buried beneath the rubble miraculously survived the toppling of the towers. Two of these individuals were Will Gimeno and John McLaughlin, a pair of Port Authority employees who responded to the attacks and were on the bottom floor when the South Tower began to fall. They raced to an elevator shaft and amazingly survived the 100-story collapse around them, but were buried dozens of feet down in the midst of an array of rubble. Trapped without water, breathing smoke-filled air, both Will and John had little hope of survival. Yet, as they lay there, pinned under a mountain of debris. Something was stirring inside an accountant in Connecticut that they had never met. Dave Carnes, who had spent 23 years active duty in the Marine Corps, was watching the scene play out on television, just like the rest of us. But more than allowing it to merely trouble him, he decided to do something about it. He went to his boss and told him he wouldn't be back for a while. Dave went to a barber shop, asked for a high and tight haircut, then stopped by his home to put on his military fatigues, hoping the uniform would allow him access into the blocked off area surrounding Ground Zero. He drove to Manhattan at speeds of 120 miles an hour and arrived by late afternoon. While rescue workers were being called off the wreckage pile because of danger, Dave was able to stay because of the clout and credential that came with his military uniform. Finding another Marine nearby, the two men walked the pile together, seeking to save the lost. After an hour of searching, they heard the faint sound of tapping pipes and yelling. Will and John had been trapped for nine hours by that time, completely incapable of working themselves free. Yet in the midst of all the rubble, a Marine who earlier in the morning had been working a spreadsheet in Connecticut found them. 
Of the 20 people pulled from the heaped up remains of the World Trade Center, Will Gimeno and John McLaughlin were numbers 18 and 19. And all because Dave Carnes took off his suit, put on rescue fatigues, and stepped into the despair and darkness of ground zero. In the same way, but to an infinitely greater degree, God took off his royal robes, stepped into our dark and depraved culture, and served us. We were buried in the depths and rubble, rubble, rubble of our own foolishness with zero chance of pulling ourselves out of our own sin. That's a picture of all of us. Apart from Christ, we are lost. We are buried dozens of feet down underneath pile after pile of all the rubble of our sin and our shame and our guilt. And as desperately as we might try to claw our way out of it, there's no way we could ever pull ourselves out of that. But God, but God wrapped himself in flesh, putting on a human uniform, so to speak, came into this world and rescued us while we were helpless. He came to seek and to save us. So with that in mind, let me ask two questions as I invite the worship team and the prayer team to come forward. First of all, has salvation come to you? Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house. Well, let me ask you, has salvation come to you? If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, let me tell you, Jesus Christ is standing with arms open wide. Receive the gospel, turn from your sin, believe in Christ and receive him into your life as your Lord and Savior. Jesus came to seek and to save lost sinners like you and me. Receive the gospel. If that's you this morning, one of our prayer team members would love to talk with you during this last song after the service. They'd love to talk with you and pray with you and they can show you how you can receive Christ into your life. The last question is this. For those of us who are followers of Christ, who are you seeking? Who are you seeking? Let us live our lives on mission, seeking opportunities to share the gospel in whatever capacity God has given us and whatever opportunity he might give us. So in the past, you guys who've been around Coastal for a while probably remember this. You might even still have the card. We used to give out those reach three cards where you write down the names of three people that you wanna pray for and share Christ with. And that's awesome, but I'm gonna make it even easier, okay? I'll make it even easier. I'm taking it down to one. I wanna ask you the question, who's your one? I want to challenge us at Coastal Gloucester, all of us in this room, I want to challenge us to have one gospel conversation in the next month with someone who doesn't know Christ. I want to challenge all of us. Let's have just one, more than one's awesome, but at least one gospel conversation in the next month with someone who does not know Jesus. You guys up for the challenge with me? See a few of you guys. We can do this, guys. This is why we're here. We're here to join Jesus on his mission to seek and to save the lost. So let's live our lives understanding that purpose and living in that purpose every day. Amen. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Jesus, I thank you that you sought me when I was a stranger, when I was wandering from the fold of God. I thank you that you saved me by interposing your precious blood on my behalf. I thank you, Lord, that you are the Lamb of God who is slain and you are worthy, O oh Lord. So God, I pray that you would challenge us, that you would convict us, that you would motivate us to live our lives on mission for you. 
Lord, I thank you for the gospel. I pray that you would help us to steward it well by proclaiming the gospel whenever we have opportunity. Father, we love you and praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and go out singing this morning.